Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Heard Tell Radio for Thursday, December the 16th. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us, however you're listening and or watching across all the various platforms. Glad y'all here. Sure appreciate you taking the time. Uh, a lot to cover today. We're going to have uh, our friend Michael Siegel. That's Dr. Michael Siegel, one of the smartest people I know. Uh, we're going to talk about Elon Musk being named the person of the year by Time Magazine uh, in no small part because of the things he does with SpaceX and space travel. Our friend Michael's the astronomer. Uh, so we're going to talk to him about those things. Also, some of the technical things that we don't like and the personal things that are highly questionable about Elon Musk. Uh, also, he does a lot of our writing at Ordinary Dash Times on COVID, so we're going to talk to him about the Omicron variant, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Also got some things going on overseas with Vladimir Putin uh, and a court case in Germany that's not getting a lot of play in American news cycle, but it goes to a theme we've seen running, especially as we get ready to do some high-profile things like the headlines today that he will be joining the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing, and he talked to Xi Jinping about it. And we will talk about how they are two of the most evil dictators on the earth, and we need to just say so plainly. But first, let's talk a little economics and politics here, a little closer to home. We're looking at CNN.com. There's this thing going on. Uh, The headline on this says, How Millions of Jobless Americans Can Afford to Dish Work. Uh, we talked about this with our friend Jericho Hill back on Monday. We've talked to other uh, economists on the podcast like Abby Hall Blanco. There's this weird thing going on where we have a labor shortage, but the unemployment late number is low. Well, how can that be? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. One is the unemployment rate is actually a whole bunch of different numbers, and you have to pick which one you're going to use and which data set you're going to use for which block, uh, what they usually call the U3 and so on and so forth. Um But there's this thing going, and people have started calling it the great resignation. Uh, The great resignation is people that are just quitting work. See, part of the thing with the unemployment number, they don't count people that aren't trying to look for work or trying to get back into the job market. They just kind of float off into the either. So just because the unemployment rate is low doesn't mean there aren't people that could be working that aren't. That's not a metric that is easily tracked. So let's look at this CNN piece real quick because... They drill down on one of the big uh, indicators in this great resignation that's going on, quoting from the piece. One of the more insidious myths this year was that young people don't want to work because they were getting by just fine on government aid. People had too much money went the narrative, which the numbers did not back that up. Instead, early retirement, whether forced by the pandemic or made possible otherwise, is playing a big role in America's evolving labor market. 
reading from CNN, people have left the workforce for a myriad of reasons in the past two years, layoffs, health and security, childcare needs, and any number of personal issues that arose from the disruption caused by the pandemic. But among those who left and are not able to or do not want to return, the vast majority are older Americans who accelerated their retirement. Earlier this month, ADP chief economist Neela Richardson said, the strong stock market, along with soaring home prices, has, quote, given some higher income people options. We already saw a large portion of the boomers workforce retiring, and they're in a better position to do so now, end quote. In assessing job recovery, economists have pointed out that while the unemployment rate has come down, the labor force participation rate hasn't improved at the same pace. But Jared Bernstein, a member of President Joe Biden's Council on Economic Advisors, said once non-prime age workers, those over age 55, are excluded from the metrics, a much clearer picture of how the labor recovery is doing because it strips out the retirement narrative. Last month, there were 3.6 million more Americans who had left the labor force and said they don't want a job compared with November of 2019. Older Americans, age 55 and up, account for a whopping 90% of that increase. I think a lot of narratives imagine prime age workers are being misused, but actually skews much more older, Sojourner told CNN Business. The off-lamented labor shortage has become a shorthand for a complicated reality of the pandemic era workforce. Let's talk about this for a second, because obviously something like COVID-19, especially the earlier variants and data we had, was that it was going to hit older Americans a lot harder. So a lot of those older Americans, if they were close to retirement age, they went, heck with this, I'm going to the house. Uh, the stock market was doing well, which means the retirement funds were up. Like the piece said, there was a, the housing markets, so the people that want to sell their house and downsize as part of their retirement, this would be a prime time to do it. One thing we need to remember with these economic things is they're very complicated. I don't understand them. That's why we have economists and people that know these things come onto the show and explain it to us and help us turn down the noise on it. But one thing that is abundantly clear is there's a couple things happening economically that are not normal. And we have to say that because of the COVID pandemic and things that the government has done in response to it are driving those things. We already talked about how the schools being closed is a major economic indicator on the lower end of the work. Those prime years that that piece is talking about, those, a lot of those people have children. A lot of those people have to deal with child care issues. A lot of those people need the steady life rhythm of their kids going to school in order for them to be productive members of the workforce. These are things that have not really been an issue before because we've never had most schools in America closed before. So when it comes to this great resignation and we're talking about people closer to retirement age that just check out early, this is also something that doesn't happen very often. There's a lot of indicators of why this might be. They might be just done with it. They may be able, like they said, they may be in a financial situation. They just want to cash in while their markets are high and their 401ks and their investments are high and they want to cash out while it's high, which would be a smart decision. But there's an evolving workforce as well. Remember, underneath all this, technology is changing things. A lot of people are going to online work or going to remote work or more technology-based work. Older workers may not want to make that adjustment and learn the new skill sets that go with that. That's also part of this thing. The other thing that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about things like the labor shortage um, is how folks have been treating each other. This doesn't seem like it's an economic-related story. But I think it is. And let's see if we can't tie the two things together. There's a story coming out of Arkansas that's gone viral. Uh, 
there was an Arkansas waitress uh, and they had this large party. This is in Bentonville, Arkansas, famously the home of uh, Walmart uh, corporate headquarters uh, and Mr. Sam originally. There was a large party. And what happened was this large party at this restaurant uh, tipped their waitress staff very generously, and they did it purposefully. I'm going to read from the Washington Post here on this story real quick. Ryan Brandt stood next to one of the more than 30 diners she just waited on as the man made an announcement. This is on a video as well. We are tipping, Grant Wise hollered so the party could hear a total of $4,400. Cheers erupted from the table. Brandt buried her face in her hands. That's the waitress. And sobbed as Wise put his hands on his shoulders. It was a beautiful moment and one I'll never forget, Wise wrote in an online post that accompanied the video. The money was to be split between Brant the waitress and the other servers who waited on Wise's parties. But what was supposed to be a kind, life-boosting gesture after December 2 dinner has devolved into a nightmare for Brant and a public relations firestorm for the Oven and Tap, the Brantonville, Arkansas restaurant where she had worked for three and a half years. Twelve days later, Brant is no longer employed there, and her former workplace has been forced to defend itself after firing her. All of it started when Wise's desire to dine with some of his clients at one of his favorite local restaurants while helping someone with a grand gesture. Wise, who's a CEO of a company, uh, had enjoyed meals at the oven and tie-up in no small part because of Brand who'd waited on him. He and his wife wanted to share their experience with some of his clients, so they chose the restaurant for the seating of the $100 dinner club whose participants agreed to each tip $100 at the establishments across town that they meet at. Others who didn't eat at Oven and Tap that night added to the tips with donations. We love the food and the atmosphere, Wise wrote online. Our clients felt the exact same way after the dinner was over. Wise said he called ahead of time to request Brandt as one of the servers and to ensure his plan wouldn't run afoul of the restaurant's tipping policy. After getting tipped, however, again, reading from the Washington Post, Brant said her manager told her that she and other servers who worked the party couldn't keep all of it. Instead, they would have to split it. Brant said normally 7% of a server's food and beverage sales at Oven and Tapped are automatically deducted from their paychecks to pay those people, like the back staff, while tips are left untouched, her lawyer Bill Horton told the Washington Post. Uh, and just to put it out here for a second, Gadotti uh, disputed the figures that are being worked here, but that's neither here nor there. We'll get back to that in a minute. Still, again from the piece, Brant turned over the tip, Horton said. Then she reached out to Wise to thank him for his generosity while explaining she hadn't got to keep the full tip. Dissatisfied with that, Wise went to the owners to ask them to return the money, saying he and his fellow diners intended to only tip the servers who'd waited on them. Horton said Wise then gave Brant and other servers the money directly. Brant walked away with, the, with about $2,200 of the, of the dollars. According to the restaurant, Oven and Taps owner Molly Mullins denied the KNWA, that's a local uh, station, that Wise had asked about the restaurant's tipping policy in advance through a spokesman. The owners told the Post that the restaurant normally takes a cut of the server's credit card tips to divvy up among other employees, but the servers get to keep the cash tips in their entirety. Uh, that's pretty standard practice in restaurants. It varies restaurant to restaurant, company to company. For large parties, the restaurant decides how to handle. When Wise requested his tip go just to the servers, the owners immediately honored the request and has an absolute right to tip whoever they want, wrote Nadell Gadotti, the president and CEO of the Little Rock Public Relations Forum that's repping the office, repping the restaurant. Oven and Tap later paid other employees who worked that night a total of about $7,000, Gadotti said because we felt the entire staff worked so hard. On Friday, 
Oven and Taps owners threatened to sue Brandt, that was the original waitress, in a cease and desist letter in which they claim she is permanently damaging the restaurant's reputation. People who've never been to the restaurant have since left, quote, countless unwarranted one-star reviews and outpouring of negative reviews, which will undoubtedly impact the restaurant's businesses, says attorney Steve Brooks, who wrote The Lawyer. Oven and Tap, quote, have now been cast as a restaurant that tweets its employees poorly, end quote. That was a long read. What does that got to do with the great resignation? First of all, there's a lot of red flags in that story because everybody's lawyered up. So I would be cautious taking everything being told at face value there, especially uh, when you have waitresses that have enough of a relationship to reach out to a customer about what they tipped. Everybody's got a lawyer involved. The restaurant's got a lawyer. Um, there's a lot going on there that you probably should be somewhat critical of. But that viral story has been happening over and over again. And what does that have to do with their great resignation? If you're in your late 50s or early 60s, and you're working a part-time job, maybe just to stay busy, or you're working a career job at the end of your career, and you're dealing with stuff like that, where people, and we've seen story after story, people are ruder now, people are more on edge, people are a little touchier with their services staff, and you're working for somebody like that, why wouldn't you try to take early retirement? Why would you want to fool with companies like that? Or on the other side of it, Customers now get behind-the-scenes views of how these restaurants operate. And other businesses, it's not just restaurants, they're seeing how everything works now because all the employees are on social media. The world has changed. A lot of these older workers probably don't want to deal with a world where everything they do in the world is being videoed, is being discussed online, and that everything you do in the workplace is probably being rated and commented on somewhere else. The world's changed rapidly, and whether you're a waiter in Arkansas or an account executive or whatever, if you're one of the older Americans who the social media-driven world is not your natural ecosystem, early retirement probably sounds pretty good, and that's on top of economic uncertainty, and that's on top of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the chaos it's written, and that's on top of a lot of those folks might just be done with it. So when we're talking about these economic issues, the great resignation, there's a lot of complicated factors involved in it. We should drill down into them. And when we see viral stories of companies acting suspectly and people not being treated really well, it's no wonder there's a labor shortage. There's just not enough good jobs and good employers to go around anyway. And people with their social media now are more aware of it than ever and want better options. We'll do more Hertel Radio right after this. Back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's go overseas for a minute and uh, turn down the noise on something that's going to get noisy because the uh, headline is that Vladimir Putin, uh, the leader of Russia, uh, the dictator of Russia, the head of the quasi gangster organization of oligarchs that run Russia, uh, has announced in a meeting, a uh, virtual meeting with Xi Jinping, the leader of China, that he will be attending the Olympics uh, come next year. We've already talked on this program about how the Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics in this case in Beijing, are going to be yet another example, like the recent Summer Olympics in China were, 
an absolute propaganda coup for the wickedness that is the Chinese Communist Party that rules over China. Uh, Putin showing up uh, doesn't help matters. It's just, you know, birds of a feather and whatnot. Um, But it's important to notice while he's doing these high profile things like being the head of a state and showing up, what you're really dealing with in Vladimir Putin. We talked earlier in the show last week about uh, what was going on in Belarus and going on in places like uh, where he's interfering in other countries. He still has an imperial mindset. Uh, the Russians are threatening to invade again Ukraine after already invading and taking over the Crimean. They've invaded Georgia. Uh, this is a very wicked man with a whole lot of power that is not afraid to weld it. Uh, our friends in Germany, though, uh, something that's not getting news coverage but goes to the heart of the matter when you're dealing with Russia. Uh, I'm reading this from the Washington Post. German court convicts Russian and brazen Berlin assassination links it to Moscow. I'll read from the piece. Uh, A Berlin court on Wednesday convicted a Russian national of the murder of a Georgian citizen of Chechen ethnicity in broad daylight in 2019 and sentenced him to life in prison. Federal prosecutors called it a political murder ordered by Russia and maintained that Vladimir Krasikov is a former colonel in the Russian intelligence service, the FSB. Koriskov was convicted of killing Zelenkon Tortnight Kanoskavili. This is not good hillbilly stuff, but I'm trying my best with it. Execution style with three gunshots on August 23rd, 2019 in the central Berlin Park, Kleiner Tiergarten, which is the famous park. Uh, Think Central Park, but a whole lot bigger. After tailing him on a bicycle in accordance with prosecutors' demands, the court ruled that the crimes of the 56-year-old Koriskov were particularly grave, likely preventing an early release after 15 years of imprisonment, as in common in the German justice system. In June 2019, at the latest, state organs, this is a quote, state organs of the central government of the Russian Federation took the decision to liquidate Kangosvili, I think, in Berlin, Judge Olaf Arnaldi said, according to Reuters. Kalishkovili commanded a militia in Chechnya from 2000-2004 and fought the Russians who have branded him a terrorist. Russian's ambassador to Germany, Sergei Nikayev, told reporters that, quote, we consider this verdict to be a biased, politically motivated decision that seriously aggravates the already difficult German-Russian relations, according to RNI Noroski, a German state-owned news agency. He said, quote, an absurd, an absurd thesis, quote, of Russian state involvement was woven through the trial, but no convincing evidence of this was ever presented calling the conviction an obvious unfriendly act, he said Russia would not fail to respond to. German authorities concluded in December 2019 that Russian agents or those linked to them were involved in the killing, and Germany expelled two Russian diplomats. The authorities said Russian officials had not cooperated in its investigation despite repeated high-level requests. The case is likely to exacerbate tensions between the two countries, already strained over President Vladimir Putin's support for Belarusian leader Alexander Lushashenko and his persecution of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. After being poisoned in Russia, Navalny was treated and recovered in Germany, only to be imprisoned upon his return to Moscow. That's the end of the Washington Post thing. There's a couple things moving here. Uh, Remember, Germany is in a situation where they're dealing with the Nordstrom II pipeline that uh, President Biden approved, uh, which will bring uh, gas to Germany directly from Russia, bypassing Ukraine. Remember, Russia is getting ready 
it looks like to take direct action against Ukraine. They've already invaded them once with the Crimean annexation. And Vladimir Putin having folks executed is nothing new. He's plutonium, he's used plutonium poisoning to go after dissidents before. He's murdered journalists. He'll kill anybody he wants to, and he'll do it and make sure folks know about it. And then he'll wink, wink, nudge, nudge at the cameras that it wasn't him. When we see him show up at the Olympics, like the headlines are blaring today that he's going to participate in the Winter Olympics, which Russia usually does pretty well at. And he stands and talks to somebody like Xi Jinping, who has the Uyghur population and millions of other Chinese under their thumb and under the boot of the Chinese Communist Party with very little freedoms. We need to understand what these people are. We need to not, you know, dance around it. They're evil. They're wicked. They're dictators. They are the modern day equivalent to all the bad actors that are famous through history. They're just living in our time. And because they take the trappings of state and put that around the wickedness they do, and in the case of Russia, they use things like uh, intimidation, their arms sales, um, they use a giant propaganda machine, they use things like clandestine operations like these assassinations, or in the case of China, who also does all those same things, but is one of the major economic powers and use that economic powers to buy silence against their wickedness. We should not be silent, especially those of us in America that still have freedom of speech, that still have social media access, unlike the people in Russia and China, that still have an ability to call this stuff out. When we see them in the news being given the trappings of state, understand what they are, especially Vladimir Putin. He's still a KGB guy. He's still a thug. He still wants to kill people that disagree with him. And in this Germany court case, they've proved it. They've got the conviction that it was state level ran. And you can go ahead and argue that, well, he didn't know. Vladimir Putin knows everything that goes on in his state. State meaning the country of Russia. He knows. That's his business. That's how he got where he is. That's why he became one of the most powerful men in the world. And we can't do a whole lot about it diplomatically or foreign policy-wise right now. But us as individuals better do something about it as far as speaking out against it. Someday history will be written about this. And you don't want to be the ones that the history books record were silent when great evil roamed the earth and we did nothing. More Hotel Radio right after this. Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, one of the smartest human beings on the planet has deigned to join us deep from within his lair. Uh, Michael Siegel, sir, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. I'm joking. For those of you that are not watching on YouTube or the Big Talker Facebook page, uh, he is deep inside uh, a couple doctors ago TARDISes with his background today. So, yep. Very. Uh, try, try to mix it up every now and then. <laughs> It's not a. It's not the industrial look. There's a lot of wood. I don't know what you would call this motif exactly. Um, yep. Fascinating. Uh, speaking of uh, crazy eccentric geniuses, uh, Time Magazine has had their one day of the year where people actually pay attention to them, which is their uh, Person of the Year award, and they have deigned to put it upon the head of one Elon Musk. 
Uh, I'll just lay my biases on the table and then let you run with it. Uh, I love his space stuff. I'm highly skeptical of his Tesla stuff because I think it's a subsidized uh, Ponzi scheme. And I really don't like most of the personal stuff of how the man conducts himself in public. But I'll leave the floor to you. What do you make of Elon Musk times man of the year? Um, probably my opinion is very similar to yours. It's it's very mixed. I think the SpaceX stuff has been pretty uh, incredible. Uh, there's things that they are doing that I am not happy about, which we'll talk about in a bit. But um, I, uh, as with you with Tesla, I'm a little bit more uh, uh, skeptical of, of many of the things they're doing and, and whether that's going to be a, a very big success. And, and yeah, there are things he has done uh, personally that I've, I've uh, disagreed with. But um, from my perspective, you know, as a scientist, as an astronomer, SpaceX is the big thing. And I think um, he has made some really impressive uh, things there. The uh, SpaceX launches have gone very well. Uh, they have uh, been very innovative. You know, he pointed out when he started this that, you know, when you launch a rocket, dropping the first stage into the ocean is like throwing away a 747 every time you fly. And landing it and re and re uh, refurbishing it is not cheap either, but it's certainly cheaper than building a new one. And it's pretty incredible to watch them return these first stages. It looks like something out of a science fiction movie where they, you know, come down and touch down on their tail. But anything we can do to save money that take in taking us into space is a good thing. You know, there's been a lot of controversy in the last few months over billionaires in space. You know, you had the Jeff Bezos Blue Origin thing. And of course, Elon Musk's thing. And uh, thing, I don't I think Branson has already flown on the first Virgin flight and so forth. And there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, they should solve problems on Earth or, you know, it's terrible that space is being taken over by billionaires and so forth. I, I am of a very different opinion. And certainly my opinion is not representative of, you know, scientists or astronomers in general. It's just my opinion. But I think that many of the things you're doing is, Many of the things that are coming around with these billionaires are good. You know, when you talk about space travel, what they are doing is a very small part of it. We, we, I don't think a lot of people realize how big an industry space is. We have dozens and dozens of launches every year by governments, by you know, other agencies all over the world. So this is just a very small part. But it's an important part because being able to work outside of government strictures they're able to experiment and innovate and do things like you know, land your first stage instead of throwing it into the ocean. And so I think there are, this is one of those places where billionaires could make a difference if they make some discovery that makes getting into things into space much cheaper. That doesn't just benefit them, that benefits everyone. You know, we have a lot in space. We have communication satellites, we have GPS satellites. Much of our economy is dependent on what's going on in space. I don't think it's kind of invisible to a lot of people how integral space is to their everyday lives. I mean, just the GPS system alone is a huge part of, of what we do. And so the biggest problem with getting things into space and getting people into space is that it's expensive. It is incredibly expensive, you know, thousands of dollars per pound to get someone into space. And so if these billionaires can make innovations that cut that cost substantially, the force multiplier effect it gives to NASA to the Chinese Space Agency, to the European Space Agency is enormous. And then the, that benefits the taxpayers. They get more bang for their buck for the money they're investing in NASA and other things. 
one thing you talked about and you've written about this before, so I want to ask you so you can explain it to folks. Um, he, since he is a private entity and he's willing to put a massive amount of money and research and effort into this sort of thing, something like the Starship program where we get these spectacular failures, but you've talked about like we see the social media videos of them crashing and burning, but you're explaining that the way they're doing that, that kind of constructive failures is actually exponentially faster than the processes that we previously had for developing a heavy lift rocket like that, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it can be faster because they have a little bit less bureaucracy and so forth. And, you know, one of the things about NASA is I don't want to say they're risk averse because anytime you put things into space, it's very risky. And you look at, you know, the, the boldness of the Mars missions we've been sending recently where they have that incredible sky crane that lowers it down and all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's very risky, but they do have a certain risk aversion. You know, when we've, I've been on proposals to do space missions and you have to, you know, very much certify everything's going to work in space. This is technology that we've tested before. You know, there are other tests, there are smaller things that you can use to test new technology. And so, but with someone like Musk, you know, he, he figures if he, you know, blows a billion dollars on a mission that fails, that's not, he's not going to have angry taxpayers calling his office and screaming at him, maybe angry investors, but not angry taxpayers. Yeah. And uh, the Department of Redundancy Department joke actually started with NASA. A lot of people don't realize that from the <laughs> mid to late 60s. Uh, yeah, I mean, the- I'm very positive on NASA. I mean, they, they, yeah. they're who I work with and for. And there's a lot of stuff they do that's amazing. They are, I think, underrated in terms of their efficiency in many ways, um, in the way they dole out grants and the way they run grants and so forth. But it is a government agency. And so that brings with it certain strictures, certain controls, certain accountability to politicians who are not always as invested in getting the science and making the most of the science and the technology, but in, you know, thinking about these in terms of budget and politics and how it looks to the public. I'm going to ask you an unfair question, but it's just because it's something that's been on my mind a little bit. Uh, We're using a new version of old technology here. We're back to using uh, capsules. We're back to doing the stage launch rockets. Was the shuttle program on the whole? I know we got a lot of data out of it. We got a lot of usage out of it. But was the shuttle program as a whole, was that a mistake? Was that a sidestep that maybe didn't advance us as much as we thought it did? Because it seems like we're just recycling the old technology now in a new way. And that middle step doesn't seem like a whole lot of stuff carried over. No, because I don't think it was a waste because there are different ways you want to do different things. Um, The original, if I remember my history correctly, the original plan for the shuttle was that it would just carry astronauts and using a space plane to carry people and then using a heavy launcher to lift equipment is probably a better use of our resources than having what we eventually ended up with, which was something that did both. Now, there were reasons for that, and uh, it was very successful in what it did. It was able to capture and repair satellites. It was able to launch and maintain Hubble and so forth. But I think the, uh, the lessons we learned from the shuttle program and the technology going forward is going to be good. I think we will see, I mean, certainly... I think uh, the Virgin Galactic is using more of a space plane design. I think that idea of a space plane is not was not a mistake. I just think it's not appropriate for what we're trying to do right now. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realized how big the orbiter was. Um, I know I didn't until I saw it up close in person because it had to land at Little Rock where I was stationed on top of the 747, and that thing is darn near as big as the 747. You just don't realize it because you always see it from a distance. That is a huge piece of equipment by anybody's standard. 
Yeah, if any of your reader or listeners are ever in the Washington, D.C. area, the, there is near the Washington airport is basically a hangar that's the extended version of the Air and Space Museum. And they, it's just filled with aircraft and spacecraft. And they have one of the orbiters there, as well as the Enola Gay and a few other things. And it's uh, just a wonderful trip if you're into aerospace at all. Uh, definitely worth your time to, to go there. And you can see the up orbiter up close and personal, one of the actual ones that flew in space. I can't remember which one it actually is. I think maybe Endeavor. Yeah. Uh, one more question on the space stuff, then we're going to get back down to Earth. Uh, when it comes to Elon Musk and SpaceX, uh, the first phase of this, for lack of a better term, uh, has worked great. They've gotten astronauts into space now. Uh, they're working on their heavy lift capability. What's the next step for them that they're working on? And is it going to be as smooth a ride as the first stage was for them? Because they seem to be getting maybe a little bit more pushback now that they're spreading out a little bit more. The, the one thing that they're getting a lot of pushback on right now is the, uh, is the satellite system, the Starlink satellite system. This is a system of thousands of satellites that are supposed to establish satellite communications to the entire globe. And there are two concerns here. One for me as an astronomer is that they reflect light. And, you know, these are passing through telescope when you're putting your telescope on the sky, these are passing through images and you get trails of these uh, across your image, which makes the uh, makes it difficult to do science. They're even, I think, in a higher orbit than Hubble. So they even can be seen in, in Hubble images. Um, I mean, Musk has said, well, we should put telescopes in space, which is a great thing to say. But just to give you a, a price comparison, it costs it costs $10 billion to put up the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going up next week. It costs $1 billion to build a 30-meter telescope that's 10 times as big on the ground. So it's not cheap or easy to put things in space. The other concern with the satellite system is the uh, potential for Kessler syndrome. If you've ever seen the movie Gravity, it shows sort of a drama dramatized version of that, where there's a concern about satellite collisions and the creation of space debris and whether you could get so much debris, sort of a chain reaction up there, that it becomes impossible to travel in space. Um, his spacecraft have automated thrusters that should help them avoid collisions, but that's not a guarantee. I mean, we've seen spacecraft collide and create messes before. Does the spacecraft automatic piloting work better than the Tesla automatic piloting? I hope so. Yeah, me too. We're talking to Michael Siegel, uh, who is a bona fide spacecraft operator and an astrophysicist and an astronomer and all kinds of big words that I barely understand. Smart guy. We're going to continue with him on Herd Tell Radio right after this. Back on Hertel Radio with our friend Michael Siegel. He's an Ordinary Times contributor. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about Elon Musk. Uh, when, To be fair to time here, they, they do person of the year as in most impactful, not the best, not the nicest guy, whatever. We know infamously they've had everybody from uh, a certain German dictator from back in the day and other folks. Does he strike you as that impactful in the last year? We know that we know it's splashy. We know he gets a lot of press. We know he gets a lot of coverage. We know there's all this cool tech stuff. Is it impactful though, from a scientific point of view, as you're looking at it? Um, I wouldn't say it is 
as impactful, certainly not as impactful as the people who've been working on coronavirus vaccines and medicines and so forth that have uh, really uh, gotten this pandemic not completely under control, but have made it blunted the edge of it at least. Um, so I wouldn't say he's been that impactful, but I, I think that they probably did this more from a sociological edge that, you know, billionaires have been in the news a lot lately, you know, even during the big COVID recession, um, billionaires, what net wealth was increasing a lot. And there's been a lot of conversation about that. So I think it probably has more to do with their feel for the news cycle than in any technological impact. Because if you talk about technological impact, I think the development of the COVID vaccine dwarfs everything. Now, you have been doing yeoman's work at Ordinary Times for, gosh, I guess about two years now. Uh, you've kind of become our go-to COVID guy for a couple different reasons. One is you just, you're good at it. And two is you have some uh, inside knowledge and information on some of the science behind it. And you're really good at explaining big words to people like me that don't understand big words. Uh, Omicron is the buzz of the day. There seems to be a developing narrative that this particular variant is going to spread pretty rapidly, but it's not nearly as severe on the whole. Is that an accurate statement? Because that seems to be the consensus that's developing here. I don't think it's we have enough information to say that right now. Um, it is certainly we have enough information to say that it's more infectious. It's taking over from Delta very quickly. You know, one of the things about these variants is, you know, Delta was twice as infectious as the original strain. But these things grow exponentially. So that means it's going to infect in three cycles, eight times as many people in five cycles, 32 times as many people. Omicron appears to be about twice as infectious as Delta. So it's going to take over very rapidly. And it has in South Africa and other places. Uh, as for whether it is milder, I think it's much too early to know. Uh, we don't have enough information on who is vaccinated, who is not, who has had prior infections, who has not. Both of those can mitigate later infections of COVID. Uh, it takes usually a couple of weeks from infection to death for someone who, uh, who goes through that. So I don't think there's enough information to, to know. I think it behooves us to be cautious you know, I think we will probably see mask mandates coming by. And I think people should, if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. There's really good reasons to believe the booster will help a lot with Omicron. There was just a result out this morning that shows that those who are double vaccinated have about 70% resistance to severe illness. And because we know that the booster heightens immunity to even higher than the original vaccine did, uh, there's good reasons to believe that will help with Omicron, that it's not completely evading immunity. Um, but I, I don't think it's reason to panic yet. Um, but I think there's reason to keep an eye on it and, and be cautious and listen to what you know, health experts are saying. But I think it will probably be a few weeks before we know whether this is a milder version of the disease or not. Continuing to talk about uh, COVID-19 for just a second, though, uh, we do have a lot more data now than we've had where the science is catching up to the to the narratives, if you will. What what do you think looking back now is some of the things we need to learn here? Because you've talked about the vaccine being a moonshot type of achievement, that part of it. So we know the science has been fantastic. Uh, structurally, though, in the country, what do you think that we've found out now about how we do health, like the National Institute of Health, obviously, Dr. Fauci has become a lightning rod, but that whole organization, is there things there just systematically that we need to review on how this process has gone, regardless of which side you fall on a lot of these issues? 
I think one of the things we need to learn from this is to have better communication with the public about uncertainties. You know, especially, you know, that's one of the things I'm trying to emphasize with Omicron. We don't know yet. And the fact that we might know within a few weeks is already science at the speed of light. You know, this is not something that you would have thought we were capable of five, 10 years ago. But I think we need to do a better job of stating this is what we know now, this is what we think, and not stating them with these uncertainties and saying that any doubt of that is, you know, disputing the science or being anti-science. There are things we know very well and, you know, shouldn't be, you know, you don't need to argue about, but there are times, I think, when we've been a little too certain about things that turned out not to be necessarily the case. Um, I don't think I, I have the expertise to really speak on this from a public health perspective. I, I do think we've done an okay job from that perspective. You know, this, this is a really big country and with a lot of people with different views and, you know, very in a time of very high partisanship. And, you know, when this first broke out, people you know, locked down. They, well, I don't want to say locked down, but they socially distanced. They stayed home. They worked from home and so forth. When we came out with the vaccine, you know, it's, I think something like 80% of eligible adults have now had at least one shot of the vaccine, which is a tremendous response from the public to something that didn't exist a year ago. And so I, I think it, obviously there, it could have been better, but I don't think we've done as badly as it feels. I mean, you hate to say that when 800,000 people are dead, but I think it could have been a lot worse. And I think that the response of the public is the reason it wasn't a lot worse. Yeah. Michael Siegel joining us. Let me ask you one more question real quick. We've talked about this before, but um, how do you think we bridge the communication and the language gap between scientists, academia, uh, government officials, and the common public? Because we're all on this social media sphere now where everybody's on a level playing field, but they're still talking as if they were in their in-groups in a lot of cases and not on a public forum where everybody's listening. Uh, I know there's no one-shot fix to any of that, but as a scientist, you're also, you teach at the college and university level. What's some of the things just practically we can maybe just language-wise to start talking at each other instead of past each other some on this thing? I think, again, emphasizing the uncertainties that, you know, when we, especially with something like COVID, which just came upon us suddenly, you know, we, many of the times, these are our best guesses. And most of the time, those guesses turn out to be correct. Sometimes they turn out to be wrong. But I think the public in general, I think, will accept scientists saying, this is our best guess, and not being talked down to as, and this is, you know, as if we're handing down stone tablets with you know, what the deal is with COVID and what we need to do about it. And so I, I think that is, to me, is, is, the biggest, uh, is the biggest hurdle to communicate that uncertainty and to communicate that uncertainty and things changing is not a sign that science is failing. It's a sign that science is working. You know, the wonderful thing about science, it has this corrective mechanism where you have to confirm people's results and you keep exploring and keep asking those questions and make sure that everything's did and done right. And when you make mistakes, you eventually figure it out and go back and say, okay, this is where we messed up. And I think that's not something to hide from the public. It's something to kind of celebrate with the public that we have this way of exploring the universe that has this correction mechanism that can keep us from going down the wrong path for years and years and making mistake after mistake. You know, so we do, you know, we do make mistakes, but I think the 
the scientific method allows us to correct those better. And that's something that I think we can do a better job of communicating to the public that, you know, when you hear this result was wrong or you hear disagreement with other scientists, that's not science failing, that's science working. Yeah. Science, it turns out, is a lot like a lot of other things with people. A little humility never hurt anything, right? Yep. Um, Michael Siegel, uh, scientist extraordinaire. Hopefully, uh, with a TARDIS background, he will be doing more Doctor Who writing, like why you can't blow the moon up and make it have a baby and these sorts of fun things that you can find on his writing at ordinary-times.com. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you for having me on again. Thank you, Mike. back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to point out uh, our friend Dennis Saunders, who joined us on the podcast. Now, we do Hertel Radio every weekday. Uh, the podcast is a longer form, a little bit more of a deep dive. Uh, we're moving those. They'll start coming out at the ends of the week, so they're available on the weekends and anytime thereafter on all the platforms, including YouTube. Uh, but our friend Dennis Saunders joined us. We talked a deep dive on the newest podcast for Herdtel about identity, about what it means to be an American, uh, how we're coming out of a post-World War II consensus and trying to figure out who we are. It's a great conversation. I encourage you to seek it out and download it and listen to it. That's on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, if you want the video version. Anywhere you get podcasts, you can get that. I mentioned that because I want you, want you to check out his podcast. He calls it En Route. Uh, and our friend Michael Siegel, who was on our program today, is his current guest on that podcast. It's a great podcast. Uh, he's a guy who, even when I disagree with him, I listen to him very carefully. And listeners of this program now know how sharp Michael is. Uh, he should be a go-to guy in your information rotation. But both of them on the same podcast, you need to check that out. That's the In Route podcast uh, with Dennis, Dennis Saunders. It's also on the Ordinary Times page if you want to look it up that way. I uh, encourage you to look into that. Um, we uh, continue to appreciate your support for our little program here, whether you're listening on the streaming, on the Big Talker, uh, on their app, their Listen Live tab, and their Facebook page. Remember, it comes out 6 a.m. with a replay at 3 p.m. on the radio. Uh, if you miss it, though, it's on the Facebook page after the initial airing all day long. You can watch it on there. Uh, if you're on the traditional platforms, uh, the iTunes, the Spotify's, iHeartRadio, we're on there now. Any platform that has podcasts, just type in Hertel or my name, Andrew Donaldson, should come right up for you, and you'll be able to find the program. Video portion is on YouTube, including the long-form podcast and the weekday radio programs. If you can, leave a comment leave a rating. Those are important. They let people know that we're worth their time. And if you leave a comment or ask a question, we'll make sure to get back to you. If you want to ask a question directly, uh, heard tell show at Gmail, or you can follow us on Twitter, uh, heard tell show at the Twitter. Uh, we'll be happy to get back to you. Any questions you have, any feedback you have, we might even read it right on here for everybody to enjoy. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.